From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As the Colorado River endures climate change, drought, and overuse, is recycling wastewater the answer? In an average American home, 24% of your water consumption is flushing water down the toilet. 24% of potable water we're throwing away. All of us here are throwing away that every day. From at-home solutions to citywide efforts, reusing wastewater and recycling are gaining momentum. Then, how a story of murder, mystery, and love between two sisters came to light due to the pandemic. Now it's up for a Colorado Book Award for Best Historical Fiction. I don't sit down to influence people in a certain way, but I hope that when people finish my books, they will feel that they've learned something. We'll talk with author Sandra Dallas. Thank you to our dedicated members and to everyone who donated during the recent fund drive. Because of you, CPR continues to grow, delivering news and music programs we can all rely on. It's incredibly powerful that tens of thousands of listeners across the state voluntarily make room in their budgets to support Colorado Public Radio. Thank you for your generosity, and thank you for being a part of the CPR membership community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Across America, we flush toilets with water that's good enough to drink. If we reuse that water, it could directly cut how much water cities need at a time of increasing restrictions. Recycling wastewater is the focus of the latest episode of Parched, CPR's podcast about the Colorado River and the 40 million people across the West who rely on it. Let's join host Michael Elizabeth Sackis. Justin Fox's house is a Southern California dream. I can see the ocean from his street. The swimming pool in his backyard is sparkling blue. Fruit trees line the lawn he put in. If you're getting freaked out thinking about all the water this consumes, Justin is right there with you. For years, he sought a way to have all of this while making his water use sustainable. When we put our lawn in outside, we thought, okay, we don't want to start putting a burden on the water, you know, the water that San Diego buys. And we just don't think that's very smart. He's standing outside their home next to his wife, who's holding their young son. Justin says they tried collecting rainwater. It doesn't rain enough down here to make that a viable source of fresh water for, you know, gardening and having fruit trees and stuff. So instead, he's setting up his family to reuse the water they use inside. I have a two-year-old son and my daughter, they love taking baths. And I thought, gosh, we're just getting rid of this clean bath water. They're not even using soap or just having fun playing with bath toys, right? And just watching this clean water go away, I started thinking about it one day and I hopped online. Online, he found a commercial unit that will clean that bath water so Justin and his family can use it outside. He hopes that'll make his slice of paradise less susceptible to drought and will mean he'll use less water from the Colorado River. He got the unit, And on the January day I'm here, he just brought it into his garage. He plans to install it as part of a big home renovation. 
he cleared out a little area next to the piles of stuff with surfboards on top. We just walk into your garage and we see this big unit here. It's like as tall as your double stacked washer and dryer. We've been waiting for two years for these units to come in and it's been like holding our breath to see if we can get this. This is this thing just, just right in my house today for the first time. So I'm really happy to have it here. <laughs> it makes me feel like things are happening. <laughs> I mean, I would walk in here and I would guess that it's like a charger for an electric car or, you know, some kind of solar battery. Like, I have no idea that this is cleaning your water. Funny you say that because it does sort of look like those when you go charging your car. It looks like those big batteries, those big chargers standing there. And it has this beautiful stainless steel front that looks like, uh, like the Jetsons. It looks just new and it looks modern. home water recycling has been around a long time. Do-it-yourselfers build systems to use their laundry water to feed the lawn. And Justin believes this is the moment it'll hit the mainstream. He believes he's on the very early edge of a revolution. This will be on every single house. This, an electric car, a car charger, solar, these are the things people are going to have. I'm sure of it. At Justin's house, we'll see how a company is trying to empower homeowners to recycle their own wastewater. And cities are finding new ways to reuse our wastewater on a much bigger scale in whole metro areas. We're in the midst of big breakthroughs in water reuse. If people and cities embrace these opportunities, it'll mean we can have other options besides the Colorado River. At home, we can't get our water up to drinking quality. And we can't recycle water that has poop or kitchen waste. But we can separate that from the water we use that's not as gross. So shower, bathtub, washing machine, that type of water, condensation from air conditioning, that's water you can capture within your own home and use it a second time. Fernando Ramirez met me here in Southern California as a leader for the company called Hydroloop that made this sleek-looking machine in Justin's garage. Fernando's describing a category of our used water that together is known as gray water. It's lightly contaminated water, right? The idea is to take all that gray water. Once that water goes through our system, then it's available to flush toilets, it can go back into the washing machine. You can use it for drip irrigation in your garden and even to top off pools. Pools like Justin's, which I can see from where we're sitting on his roof deck on a sunny and warm winter day. Fernando and Justin believe that at-home gray water recycling can mean real water savings in the Southwest. This is serious business for Fernando, who sits across from me wearing a suit jacket with his graying brown hair neatly combed. Hydroloop and a competing company called Greater both see huge potential. Fernando says it's obvious, since right now we flush our toilets with drinking water, also called potable water. We flush with water that's good enough to drink. In an average American home, 24% of your water consumption is flushing water down the toilet. 24% of potable water we're throwing away. All of us here are throwing away that every day. 
it should be illegal at some point to flush toilets with potable water. Fernando got interested in water when he worked in the energy industry. He was curious how the availability of water and energy are connected. Then he volunteered abroad to learn more about a lack of access to clean water. It's something he can relate to. So I was born in Colombia. Uh, so I was born in a developing country uh, where we do learn at early age as well to respect resources, to respect Earth. And it's a significant shift here in the U.S. when you look at the U.S. population and, and even my own children. You know, we need to teach them about sustainability. That's something that's born within us when you come from a third world country. Then in 2020, he joined Hydroloop, the European company that makes these gray water machines. It hired Fernando to expand the company in the U.S. They want new homes to be required to separate gray water from other wastewater, so units like this can be put in. They also want individual homeowners to buy in, the way Justin has. Justin really seems like the archetype of an early adopter for a fancy-looking at-home gray water system. He's a gadget guy who's also environmentally minded. That started when he was a kid, growing up north of here, near Yosemite National Park. You can see the snowpack up there, if it's gonna be a good or bad year. You can see the level of the reservoir to see how much water you have. People were doing gray water recycling back in the 70s and 80s, and they were doing these large sand pits it was mostly just shower water. It would take all the soaps back out and then we could reuse it for watering up there in an area that water has always been scarce. Today, Justin and his brother run a solar business and he's embraced solar wholeheartedly for his own family. Looking down into your backyard, I see you have backyard chickens. There's an actually <laughs> like a coop and a run and the coop has solar panels on it? Yeah. <laughs> what are those doing? We have a limited roof space on our small house, so we had to add it out there. Justin's electrified everything in his house he can think of. The garage we started in has a giant battery on one side that captures the solar energy he makes. I'm sitting there listening to Justin explain all the different variations of technologies adopting. He's George Jetson. That, that's who he reminds me of. then that Justin, the early adopter, would have this Jetsons-looking machine to reuse his water. He's not on Hydroloop's payroll, but when he bought the unit for himself, even before he'd installed it, he bought eight more for friends and family, then a whole shipping container's worth to offer to his solar customers as add-ons. Hydroloop's units cost about $5,500. That's similar to the competing company, Greater. Justin knows not everyone can afford it, but he thinks it's like the early days of solar at home or the first people to buy electric cars. Those have started to go mainstream. Justin says at-home gray water reuse machines will too. We've been in droughts in California where you have to cut it off and you see all the lawns die and you see all the vegetation die and all the 
plants and trees outside of people's houses and we'll be the one unicorn house that at night when the power is off and we're the house with the lights on and we're going to be the one house with fruit trees in a lawn that's still there because we're going to be using recycled water. But the idea of this becoming widespread seems far in the future because right now reusing your gray water at home is not even allowed in some places in the Southwest. It was, in effect, illegal to set up a gray water system pretty much everywhere in this region before the 1990s. Arizona started to allow it, then Wyoming and New Mexico. Other Colorado River states started to allow it only 10 or 15 years ago. In some places, you can now run a hose to send your laundry water outside to your lawn without getting a permit. That's progress, but often it's up to cities to decide how permissive they'll be. The regulations are based on concerns about health and safety. If you have water in your house that hasn't been treated to the city standards. I get it. You know, accidents happen, pets, Little kids, that's a, they worry about it. They go to that extreme, and I understand why. But if that's a discussion, then we can address that. With Hydroloop, Fernando became something of a door-to-door salesman, meeting with cities to try to speed up permitting and influence regulations to get more places to allow home reuse. So every home becomes its own recycling of water plant. That's a significant change in the, in the discussion. Right? Every home has the capability to recycle water and contribute to the water crisis. That's the message, and that's the shift in mentality. At Justin's house, it's become a reality. He installed the machine, and he checks the app every day to see how many gallons he's saved. But is reusing water, one home at a time, the only way to do it? On top of what individual people like Justin can do to use less from the Colorado River, cities can build special plants to treat and reuse everybody's water. They wouldn't need to separate out the gray water from other wastewater. They wouldn't need each house to adopt recycling one by one. What do you want to see? What's your favorite animal at the zoo? Um, tigers. A tiger. I came to see the white gator. Yeah, the white gator for sure. The baby sloth. The baby sloth. Oh. It's a beautiful, warm, sunny day at the Denver Zoo, which was one of my favorite places to come as a little kid growing up in the Denver area. We're standing on a bridge, and underneath us is a, is a, a pool of water. And we see actually a, a rhino right over here on our right. And this water is recycled water. Some of this under my feet was toilet water. The utility Denver Water takes all of the water people use at home and treats it so it can be reused here. Say elephant. We're really excited to see the elephant. It's his favorite animal. They're really magical, and they have really good memories. Taking in the cute kids and the elephants with me is Asta Parker. Yeah, there's some nice, like, meditation music, and they're just sunbathing and eating grass. It's a pretty nice life. (laughs) 
She's a total animal nerd, just like me. Asta is also an environmental engineer and an expert on recycled water at the national consulting firm where she works, called Brown and Caldwell, which advises cities like Denver. Almost a third of the water the zoo uses is cleaned wastewater. And that's what we're seeing at the zoo today, is how we recycle domestic wastewater for non-drinkable uses. So that's the purple pipe category. Literally, the pipes are purple because you can't just send this water through our normal plumbing since it's not drinking water. Right, so yes, I see that little tag right there that says recycled water on this pipe that has like a, a hose to it. Remember Asta said non-drinkable. This is by far the most common type of water recycling cities get into. Cities set up a purple pipe system and mostly use it to water grass outside. I remember seeing a purple pipe feeding a golf course in Tucson. Some industries use it too, like power plants to cool down the equipment. Sports stadiums and office buildings are increasingly reusing their water. Denver hopes someday the airport will use it, maybe to spray down the airplanes. Asta says she's seen places use it to keep down dust outside or... A lot of purple fire hydrants out there, which I think are pretty exciting to go around and look at. The zoo has been able to cut down on how much pristine water it uses, leaving more for the rest of us. It uses the purple pipe water on grass and also to wash down the animals' indoor spaces behind the scenes and the outdoor habitats for elephants and rhinos. Asta asks if I want to hear her fun fact about purple pipe water. And yeah, obviously I do. You see all the purple signage and purple pipes and labeling and the hoses and that sort of thing. And purple is the official color across the world for reclaim water or recycled water pipes. So it's not just in Colorado and not just, you know, one state specific. So anywhere you go in the whole world, if you see purple pipes, that means reclaim water. Specifically, reclaimed water that isn't treated to drinking standards. There's a rhino right here taking a mud bath, rolling around in a mud pit. That was pretty exciting. The rhino's splish-splashing in the recycled water exhibit. So purple pipe water is useful, but it also has real limits. The water can only be used for certain things because of health and safety, which means it can only replace so much of the water we're drawing from the Colorado River and other sources. And the purple pipes are a whole different plumbing system from the one that goes into buildings across the city. Building out that system isn't something a lot of cities can afford. It does not typically go over well in communities to do large amounts of construction year-round for many years. It also requires maintenance. It requires folks to sign on and use the recycled water. Cities would need customers for the water, like the Denver Zoo, to make it worth it. The other, and I am so sorry, I am distracted by this monkey, that they're swinging across the rope and it's really exciting right now. <laughs> oh, wow. That's so cute. <laughs> it's adorable. Um, and so I think that it is a barrier, but that is actually where potable reuse projects come in. Potable equals drinkable. Recycling water so it's up to drinking standards is like the pinnacle of citywide water recycling. Just like purple pipe water, you take 
all the wastewater people produce and treat it, not just their gray water. But the difference from purple pipes is that you also treat it well enough that it's drinking water quality. So that means cities don't have to find specific customers like the zoo or put in all new pipes. The infrastructure is already in place. All the piping and the system and the distribution, everything can operate the same way. The way it does with our drinking water. At home, we wouldn't do anything differently. We'd get treated wastewater coming into all of our taps. Cities in the Southwest are starting to do this, and it has the potential to take off in the next 10 years to create a more reliable local source of pristine water for cities across the Southwest. But even being open to this idea is a huge evolution from how Americans thought about drinkable wastewater just 25 years ago. Back then, a federal agency deemed wastewater reuse a solution of last resort for our drinking water supplies. Over decades, the U.S. had intentionally set up wastewater and drinking water separately to protect our health and the environment. Then in the 90s, as more places worried we wouldn't have enough water to go around, they got interested in reusing wastewater. By then, technology was reliably making it safe enough. But that didn't always sit well with the people who would be drinking it. The idea of water that's flushed down a toilet didn't conjure up the same image as, say, Rocky Mountain spring water. My name's Berkeley Hudson. He's a journalism professor at the University of Missouri. I was a staff writer at the Los Angeles Times in the late 80s and 90s. And I wrote about potential for recycling sewage water for drinking water supplies. There was a real need to figure out how are we going to supply the water needs for, in that case, in the San Gabriel Valley, a million people. To replace water Southern California was pulling from the Colorado River, the San Gabriel Valley in greater Los Angeles proposed to reuse its wastewater. But locals were kind of grossed out. The people opposing this, using this recycled sewage water, came up with kind of a genius, and you could say propaganda, toilet to tap. Toilet to tap. Berkeley heard that pithy phrase for the first time at a public meeting on the proposal to reuse wastewater. He wrote it into his story, and it really caught on. I think the story got circulated all over the place. I mean, our stories would go out to 600 media outlets around the world. This slogan, Toilet to Tap, became a rallying cry for people to oppose wastewater reuse nearby in San Diego and Los Angeles. In LA, the utility spent $55 million building a wastewater reuse project and abandoned it when customers got freaked out. LA used it for a few days and then shut it down. It becomes emotional and the science gets crowded out. That all taught Asta a lesson that wastewater reuse advocates still take very seriously today. They have to get support early on from the people who will be drinking this water. 
what we have learned as an industry is certainly that the way you message a project or the lack of messaging or the lack of transparency can kill a project pretty quickly. So public fear helped keep this solution on ice, even as the need for it started to become apparent. But that has been thawing since the controversy in Southern California. Because think about it. Even rain was once liquid inside something's body that's gone through nature's filtering. City wastewater reuse is humanity's version of that filter. We're all just drinking dinosaur waste at the end of the day. We drink the exact same water that the dinosaurs did. It's just evaporating and moving. And so we would all like to think that we are only using and only drinking water that has come from snowflakes up in the mountains. But it's all recycled water on the planet. As the mega drought lingers, momentum for recycling our wastewater to drinking standards has really picked up. Today, a handful of cities have built facilities to intentionally treat their own wastewater up to safe, drinkable standards. It has the potential to expand to a lot more cities because we're on the cusp of breakthroughs in state laws. I don't want to get too technical, but just like Fernando was struggling with restrictions on at-home water reuse, one by one, states have to set rules for cities to turn their wastewater into drinking water, and they're slowly making it possible. For the first time in history, I would say that regulations, economic drivers, and, and being able to financially afford it, the technologies catching up and public acceptance are all actually coming together at just the right time to be able to make that a reality. For growing cities in the West, Asta says this development couldn't come soon enough. We didn't necessarily plan for the population that exists across the Western U.S. right now in a lot of the city centers. When these cities were founded, a lot of them were founded based on a small water supply. So why is reuse so important? It doesn't really matter whether or not it snows or it rains we still have wastewater coming into the wastewater treatment plants. There's a city already modeling this future, just outside Denver in a place called Aurora. It gets a quarter of its water from the Colorado River. There are hundreds, maybe more than a thousand water utilities in the Southwest. Aurora is one of just about 15 by our count that have built facilities to intentionally recycle their own wastewater to pure standards. Aurora, each day your beauty shines as brilliant as the dawn. Aurora's TV station made this promotional video. Positively Aurora, you stand for quality. It highlights a lush green golf course, a kid living it up on a water slide, sailboats on a big blue reservoir. But don't let all that water fool you. Aurora has had a hard time getting enough of it. They've had to go after solutions they wouldn't have considered a few decades ago. Because this city has been booming as people flock to this region, just like other cities that use Colorado River water. So we're going to need water for that growth. 
Swervine Nyarenda is a planner for Aurora Water. Swervine is showing Asta and me around the fancy purification facility here. We're standing outside on a walkway now, looking over water that's being treated. The sewage has been removed before it gets here, but there are still things in the water that need to be cleaned. Most of our treatment processes that we use are all based on things that happen in the environment. We're really just consolidating that and making an engineered system to do a very similar type of treatment with a biofilter. Sorvine says this system is a big part of what will make it possible to live in this city in the future. And it's a model other growing cities can follow. It is a reliable supply of water. It's not subject to, you know, climate variability and that kind of thing. So it's a reliable supply of water for us, and we are going to exploit it as much as we can. Aurora plans to keep investing and upgrade this facility. Right now, they treat the water really well, but they also hold the water in a river for a while to get some additional cleaning from Mother Nature. Upgrading will let them send treated wastewater more directly to people's taps to eliminate some energy they need to use. Recycling our water like that, treating it and getting it straight back to taps, is just becoming possible in the Southwest. Colorado established its regulations earlier this year. California, Arizona, and New Mexico all have regulations in the works. These regulations could make it cheaper and mean it will use less energy so that more cities could treat wastewater to become drinkable. Ultimately, it'll give more cities a viable local water source. And in my mind, it's liquid gold. I love the idea that that is becoming as valuable to us as any reservoir, as any river water, or anything else. I just love your excitement around it. I mean, it seems like this is like a really cool moment for you to feel like all of these stars are aligning and that this is going to just become, like you said, just something that people are used to. It is. I think that this is the world that, you know, I thought was possible. I think many of us did. 10, 15 years ago, we were like, one day, one day we're going to see direct potable reuse in so many communities or potable reuse in general. One day we are going to see people valuing wastewater as highly as they value, you know, any sort of reservoir or other water source. And it's, it's actively happening. Ushering in this change will come down to local decisions at hundreds of utilities in the Colorado River states. Cities will have to consider how much more water they need and how much they're legally required to send down the river to the next city that needs it, plus how much the environment itself needs that wastewater for the river's health. Even if it doesn't happen immediately, Asta's confident that if the Southwest water situation gets more dire, fast, wastewater reuse has become a realistic way to react. Absolutely. We can make it happen. And it may not be, you know, the most beautiful rollout, but we can absolutely provide safe, reliable drinking water for any community. 
So recycling water at a lot of different scales can be a reliable way to help us live more sustainably in the Southwest. It's not cheap, but it's often less expensive and has fewer environmental impacts than moving water from someplace else or desalinating ocean water. Along with conservation, recycling can make an individual city or even an individual person more secure that they'll have water in the future. Parched with host Michael Elizabeth Sackis from CPR's climate and environment team. Find this in all the episodes at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, an author who grounds her fiction in history. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Read with Colorado Matters. We've chosen the new book, Soil, the story of a black mother's garden by Camille T. Dungy of Fort Collins. Gardening is both resistance and resilience, a space for rest and a space for instruction. Gardening is many, many things. We then invite you to join us June 29th at Denver Botanic Gardens to be a part of my interview with the author. Details and free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The Colorado Book Award winners will be announced Saturday, and one nominee describes herself as the Susan Lucci of this award. She's been nominated eight times but has yet to win. Sandra Dallas is nominated this time for her work of historical fiction set during a time of the Spanish flu epidemic. She spoke with Colorado Matters producer Rachel Estabrook. Welcome to the show. Thank you. This book that we're talking about is called Little Souls. How did you get the idea for this book? I was reading a book about the 1918 flu epidemic, and I read that people were so frightened of the flu that when someone died in their house, they would take the body outside and leave it for the death wagons to pick up. And I thought, that would make a great murder mystery. You could hide a body that way. Oh, my goodness. And so from there I went and and tried to find a plot. Right, because this book is, in a way, a murder mystery. And the murder mystery has a lot of twists and turns about who did it. Did you know how it was going to turn out when you started? Or did you decide as you went along who was going to be the one holding the murder weapon? I knew the ending when I started the book. I didn't know how I was going to get there. And so the twists and turns sort of came as I went along. And as you said, it is a a murder mystery, but it's also a story of compassion, of love between two sisters. And uh, it's more, I think, a general story than it is a a mystery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about love. It's also a book about perseverance and finding love and light in unexpected places. Was that a message you felt like we needed in the third year of a pandemic? I wrote the book actually long before the pandemic. Uh I wrote it about, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. I sent it off to my agent, and the response was, who cares about the 1918 flu epidemic? (laughs) And then about six months into the COVID epidemic, my agent called and said, remember that manuscript? And so I pulled it out and did some rewriting and sent it off and turned out to be very timely. That's so interesting that you wrote the book before it was even accepted. That seems like 
an unusual process for a writer. I don't know if it is or not. I'm not comfortable selling a book on an idea because I'm not confident enough that I'll be able to write something that's publishable. So I would much prefer to complete the book. And then if the publisher likes it, then I'll sell it. Um, I do write books that don't make it that far. One of them was Little Souls, but eventually it did get published. Hmm. So the love story that you talked about, I understand this love between the sisters, which continues in the book even after one of them dies, that um, this draws from your own life in a way. Could you tell me about your relationship with your sisters and how their stories made it into this book? I had an older sister who died of polio when she was 13 years old. Mm. That was our family tragedy. It affected our family in many ways and for all of our lives. I still remember the anguish my mother went through. I remember the sadness that came to all of us. And I still think of her. I think of her as she was four years older. And I think of her now as being four years older. Hmm. And I think I drew a, a lot on that tragedy in our lives. Polio then was very much like the 1980 flu epidemic. People were so frightened of it. Swimming pools were closed. Summer camps were closed. It affected particularly children, which was tragic. Hmm. So, right, some people will draw a comparison between COVID and the flu, but you're saying there's also a comparison between polio. And I think so. Not as direct a comparison as COVID, but, but certainly one to any uh, epidemic. Wow. So as you still think about your sister today as if she was living four years older than you, did writing this book, how did that fit in to your modern-day relationship with her? The influence she had on the book was not conscious. I think I just drew on some. I didn't actually think about her death when I was writing the book. But I think my feelings were subconscious, and I think they came out. Huh. So the book's main character is named Ludie. She starts out as this very naive young woman. She's hardworking and she loves her family, but she's sort of blind to a lot of the hard parts of life. And she develops a lot through the book as she's exposed to the challenges of the time, the flu, but also World War I. What interested you about that kind of a journey for someone? I wanted her to grow up during that period, and anybody would. The book starts out as Ludie comes home having seen a flu victim dead on the street, and she finds her sister standing over a man who's dead, and the sister has a knife in her hand. At that point, Ludie really does start to grow up. She begins to realize that, you know, a man is dead because of what someone in her family has done. Then she's engaged to a, um, a young man who goes off to war. The fear of the war, the tragedy that that is, uh, figures into her life. So she couldn't help but grow up. And the man that her sister is standing over is different than the flu victim in the street, just to be clear. Those are yes, two different that's people. Correct. So she sees death twice in one day, basically. She does. And then is also dealing with the, what her fiancé is going through. Yes. With the war. The book is not all sad. Ludie falls in love. She has a wonderful time with her fiancé. 
Um, much of the book is about Denver, about the things they do in Denver. They go to a movie. They see a Tarzan movie uh, in one of the theaters and on Curtis Street, which was then Denver's Great White Way because of all the light bulbs and the, the movie houses. She and her sister have a lot of fun together. So the book is it's a lot about love, about relationships, as much as a mystery. I was curious about those Denver landmarks. You write about several of them, including the zoo near City Park and um, the streetcar routes. Are all of those historically accurate for the time? Well, I hope they are. I started out writing nonfiction books uh, about architecture, and I have one on Denver, and I wrote a lot about uh, those things in Denver. And, of course, I remember the Colfax trolley. Certainly, I know City Park. I grew up near there. and remember some of the things in the book. Hmm. You write about this specific mansion on Grant Street. Is that a house that's still standing? It's not a specific house. Okay. But I remember Grant Street when all the mansions were there. I took music lessons in one of them, and I used to walk up the street, oh, probably five at night when it was dark and in the winter, and I was maybe 10 years old, and I was fascinated with those mansions. I was wondering because I was kind of picturing you outside this house still standing, sort of taking notes on it. (laughs) Um, So you've written 33 books now. Is there something quintessentially about Colorado or Denver that you try to capture in your books? No, but I want it to be accurate. I want people to get a sense of what the West is. And I, I do, in most of my books, have descriptions of the plains I have set several books in eastern Colorado and write about that and go out there and sort of just soak up the atmosphere. I think that's important to get. I should set my books in France so that I could go there, but I don't. I set them in Kansas and Colorado. And you actually worked in the same department store that was a real, obviously a real-life department store as your character in this book, Ludi, doing the same type of work. I did. I was a... Um, publicist. My first job out of college at Newsetters, which was a women's specialty store in Denver, a very elegant store. I remember I made $50 a week, and I would walk to work to save bus fare. It was pretty tight, and I was called in by my boss to find out why I had not given to United Fund. Hmm. And so I used that story for Ludi, who works in the same department, and is pressured to give to the war bond drive. Hmm. And Newsteaders, was that right on 16th Street? Newsteaders is 16th and Stout. Okay. Yeah. The building is still there. I think it's now condos. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about this unique human ability to, to teach each other things through stories. And so I'm curious, as someone who's written such a prolific collection of books, Is there something you hope to teach people through your writing, some knowledge or feeling you like to pass on, or is it more about writing to entertain people? I don't write message books. I don't sit down to influence people in a certain way. But I hope that when people finish my books, they will feel that they've learned something about the flu or about Denver or about whatever the setting is that I'm writing about and the time period. That's what I like when I read books. I like to finish them and and 
no, I've learned something new. People tend to get things out of my books that I don't know I put into them. When I wrote my first novel, I thought I was writing an historic novel, and readers told me I was writing about loyalty and friendship. Hmm. So those tend to be themes of my books, although I don't intend them to be. Hmm. Do you have a favorite among your 33 books? My favorite was always a book called The Diary of Maddie Spencer that I wrote about Eastern Colorado maybe 20 years ago. My favorite is actually my current book, Where Coyotes Howl, which is a story set in Wyoming in 1916. That's just coming out now, right? Yes, it came out in April. So maybe we'll see that on next year's Colorado Book Awards <laughs> list. Do you think there'll be a time when you want to stop writing? I haven't found it yet. I don't know what I'd do if I didn't write. There may come a time when my writing is no longer publishable, but I think I'll probably always write. Well, I wish you luck in the Book Awards this year. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Sandra Dallas is nominated for a Colorado Book Award for her historical novel, Little Souls. Winners will be announced June 10th. She spoke with my colleague, Rachel Estabrook. He was expelled after he refused to cut his afro. 57 years later, Otis Taylor has received his diploma. Back in 1966, a couple months before he was set to graduate from Manual High School in Denver, he was told he needed to cut his hair or he'd be kicked out. You know, I had like a little teeny afro, so they said I have to cut the sides of my hair. I said, I don't care. Goodbye. I wasn't going to go to college. I just wanted to play music, you know. And play music he did. Otis Taylor, who is Black, is now a celebrated blues artist and a Colorado Music Hall of Famer. The story of his belated graduation comes to us from our colleagues at NPR. Here are hosts, Elsa Chang and Mary Louise Kelly. He's now recorded more than a dozen albums over a decades-long career. As a kid, Taylor says he lived just a couple of blocks from a music shop at Gathering Place for Folk Musicians called the Denver Folklore Center. One day, he took in his mother's broken ukulele to get it fixed. I just went inside this folk music store, and psychologically, I never came out. They taught me for free how to play music, you know, it was really cool. Taylor says a diploma didn't matter much to him, but his parents did not share that view. My mother was mad, my father was livid. I don't think he ever forgave me for that, no matter how successful I got. Taylor says his father was also a jazz fan, and he didn't care much for Taylor's taste for the blues. He wanted me to be a jazz musician, he didn't want me to play the blues, he wanted me to go to college, and I just did everything he didn't want. (laughs) Taylor first learned to play the banjo, and he cut an unusual figure around town. There's a picture of him in the Denver Post, 1964. He is 16, playing the banjo as he balances on top of a unicycle. The paper called him probably the only banjo-playing unicyclist in Denver. Taylor says he was surprised to learn decades later about the banjo's African origins. The first time I found out the banjo came from Africa, I asked my banjo teacher, why didn't you tell me? He goes, I don't know, I just didn't think of it. It's like, wow, why would anybody tell me this? He's now gone on to record several albums celebrating the instrument's roots, including the one you're hearing now, Recapturing the Banjo. Look at the one, the one that I see. Time felt coming after me. 
In the decades since Taylor was expelled, more than a dozen states have enacted laws that outlaw discrimination based on hair texture and style. As for Taylor, getting his diploma at age 74? Well, he says it was a surreal experience and he has no regrets. Would you do it if you had a chance to do it over again? Hell yes, I'd do it over again. You know, you can't dwell on all the bad things that happened to you, especially as a black person. You know, you just have those moments and I had a choice. So like, they just kicked me out of school and you can't come back. I had a choice. I was just a kid. You want to play music, you want to play music, you know? That's what grandma say. Hey, hey. Yeah. That is Otis Taylor, older blues man, and now at 74 years young, he is finally a high school graduate. Congratulations. We'll leave you today with Write a Book About It, the song released earlier this year on Taylor's new album, Banjo. Thanks for joining us. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.